welcome to this podcast from ASHA, the American Sexual Health Association. I'm Fred Wyant, ASHA's Director of Communications. In this edition of our humble podcast, we're continuing our discussion of the human papillomavirus, or HPV as it's known. HPV is one of the topics we're asked about most frequently. So today, we're going to cover the most common HPV questions that people have when they contact ASHA. And to explore all this, we're very lucky because we're joined by Dr. Hunter Hansfield. Dr. Hansfield, welcome, sir. Thanks, Fred. Uh, nice to hear your voice and greetings to all of you who are listening to this podcast. So some background. Dr. Hansfield has been a leader in STD research and prevention for over 40 years and is Professor Emeritus of Medicine at the University of Washington Center for AIDS and STDs. And during his long career, He's, he's regularly been called upon to consult and advise on national STD treatment and prevention policies and recommendations and guidelines. Um, more importantly to me, Dr. Hansfield recently completed six years as a member of ASHA's Board of Directors, and during that time, I have to tell you, he showed the patience of Job and was good-natured as I harassed him with endless questions about a variety of STD topics, including a lot of HPV. So. Thanks again for taking the time to chat today, and we'll just jump right into it. Probably the most common question that people are asking about when they come to us with, it, with HPV is, will I always have it? Um, so let's talk a little bit about what's known as the, quote, natural history. Will somebody always have HPV? So I, I would split that question into two. Biologically, will you always have it? Maybe. Many HPV infections persist, at least the DNA from the virus persists, in infected tissues or in the areas that were exposed for life. Now, how often that really happens and whether DNA is always there for life isn't really known. It's certainly a high proportion, uh, at least a modest minority, but whether it's really 100% or not isn't really known by experts. But in a way, that's not the key issue. The presence of DNA itself shouldn't be looked at as an active infection. In some cases, the infection can reactivate from one of those foci where the DNA is persisting and show up as a new problem years later. That's a common scenario to explain a lot of abnormal pap smears uh, in, in women. However, the majority of time it doesn't do that. The large majority of people who present with genital warts or an abnormal pap smear or some other manifestation of HPV, the HPV that's obvious, can expect the immune system to clear the virus from the system to a point that it cannot be detected by any known test, cannot be transmitted, and is unlikely to recur. So for practical purposes, it is cured by the immune system and the infection is gone. And it's a mistake for people to worry about that persistent DNA because in my view, that doesn't mean the infection persists, quote, forever, unquote. It just means some of the genetic material may persist, but usually causes no problem. Can we think about this the way we think about some other viral infections, like, for example, chicken pox we may have had as a kid, even though there's no medical cure for it, and some people might have shingles outbreaks in adulthood. It's really not something you, you worry about, you know, being transmissible or, or, or causing problems down the road. Is it somewhat like that? Yeah, there are similarities, although the, the analogy is not perfect. For 
herpes group infections, and the whole group of herpes viruses include not only herpes simplex, which causes genital herpes and oral herpes, but cytomegalovirus, Epstein-Barr virus, the cause of infectious mononucleosis, varicella zoster virus, which is the cause of chickenpox and shingles. These are all herpes viruses. And the herpes viruses have this characteristic of the virus itself, not just its DNA, but the virus itself persisting in the body in a latent, quiet state for a long, long time, often for life, and periodically flaring up to cause a new problem. The difference with HPV is that it's the virus itself that does persist with the herpes infections. And you can expect recurrences, whereas we said with HPV, it is rare for someone to have a delayed recurrence. It's quite common for the herpes group virus to have those delayed recurrences. So the principle that there's a quiet infection or the trace of infection that's there is similar to two viruses. But uh, for HPV, it's a much less important uh, problem and less likely to ever cause future difficulties compared with the herpes group viruses. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about how people acquire HPV infections. How do you get it? Uh, we talk commonly about genital-to-genital or genital-to-anal contact uh, with or without penetration, just that skin-to-skin -skin contact. But people want to know about, well, what about oral sex? What about hand-to-genital hand contact? Would you talk a bit about those, those routes of transmission with HPV? Transmission by ways other than direct genital or genital anal contact is rare. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but by far the majority of genital area HPV infections are acquired by traditional intercourse or direct genital apposition. Now, some infections are acquired in the mouth by oral genital contact, but transmission from the mouth to the genital area appears to be a very rare phenomenon. It's a very difficult thing to study systematically. All we know, or one of the main things we know, is that we don't see people in busy STD clinics who have genital warts whose only exposure was oral or whose only exposure was hand genital contact. We can't say that those things never occur, but they certainly are extremely rare. You know, once in a while, someone shows up who has a genital HPV infection who's never had intercourse. And the best bet for those few individuals is that heavy petting with hand genital contact or oral genital contact was the source. But it's really the exception and not the rule. And it's not something people should go out of their way to worry about. As an example, I would not recommend routine use of condoms for oral sex in order, in order to prevent HPV. The risks are just too low. And, you know, people don't tend to like condoms for oral sex. And uh, recommending something that people are just inherently find distasteful or inconvenient mm -hmm. doesn't work well. Uh, uh, there are good reasons in some cases to use condoms for oral sex, not for HPV permission. Um, so I would say to people who are concerned about HPV, protect yourself by common sense measures when you're having intercourse. Uh, using condoms makes sense, although even for genital sex, condoms are on the borderline in terms of their efficacy. Perhaps we'll have time to talk about that in more detail, uh, Fred, uh, in a little bit. Okay. 
Let's talk about the relationship side of things, what, what one needs to tell a partner. Um, I'm thinking both in terms of a current partner, maybe partners down the road. So let's take a current partner first. If someone has an HPV diagnosis and they've been in a relationship which they're um, presuming is monogamous and they've been together for a while, um, how do they talk with their partner about this? Is this necessarily a sign of infidelity? No, absolutely not. I mean, if, if someone's in an ongoing relationship and one member of that couple now diagnosed with, with HPV, and the large majority of such instances are women who pop up with an abnormal pap smear um, at a time when uh, they've only been having sex with their particular committed partner for uh, a long period of time, months or years, um, they can assume that, number one, they could have caught it from that partner, but they'll probably never know. They certainly have exposed that partner by having unprotected sex over the months or years they've been together. So that partner really has no current concerns. <coughs> Pardon me. So that partner has no current health concerns at all as long as he or she has not noticed anything wrong, not seeing warts or anything like that or any unexplained lesion on the penis or elsewhere in the genital area. Uh, if so, get that checked out, but otherwise, don't worry about it. Almost certainly what's happened is that you were infected and your immune system has cleared it up, uh, and you never had symptoms and never will. Um, now, it is an STD, and so there will be some circumstances in which new HPV will show up that is because of a newly acquired infection, and there may be implications. <coughs> so there will be some infections for which uh, HPV may show up and in fact reflects a new infection. Uh, HPV is sexually transmitted and acquired, so a new appearance of infection sometimes does reflect a uh, in, new introduction of that infection into that couple uh, because one of the others had other partners. So you can't totally ignore that aspect and it's not unreasonable for someone with newly diagnosed HPV to at least have a sensitive conversation with his or her partner about that possibility, but but in, in, in the committed relationship in which there is no other evidence and uh, there's a forthright true belief by both members of the couple that they nobody's been unfaithful to the other, that evidence is by far almost always accurate. And, uh, and people can go forward with the assumption that, that there's no other concerns for other STDs, for example. Let's talk about future partners, and this may touch a bit on our earlier discussion around the fact that most HPV infections don't persist. So what about the need with someone um, down the road, six months, six years, whatever? Uh, is there a need to bring this up with sexual partners in the future? I would say it's usually wise to bring it up, but not because of an infection prevention perspective, but in the name of an open and mutually respectful relationship. So as people uh, uh, approach commitment uh, and uh, romance, uh, couples often will discuss their past partnerships and STDs and that sort of thing. Because everyone has had HPV, I mean, the official figure, the official estimate by people like CDC is that 80%, my personal view is that 90 or 95% of all of us acquire <clears throat> genital HPV at least once 
many of us several times, and having genital HPV is a normal and expected part of human sexuality. It essentially can't be avoided. And so when a new partnership, when, when, when forging a new partnership, um, the knowledge that either or both could well have HPV from a past relationship, that HPV does persist for a few months to a year or two, typically before the immune system clears it up, um, so that at any point in time, a high proportion in people in their late teens and through the night, through age 30 and above, at any point in time in the U.S., 10, 20, 50 percent, depending on other details, are carrying HPVs of various types. So future partners can be told, yeah, I've had HPV, but so what? Uh, so is everybody else. I'm not sure that's the exact tone of voice you'd use, but it's the idea that uh, that this is normal, expected. I know you've had other partners. I don't particularly want to know the details, my dear. Uh, but <clears throat> we're both adults, and we're aware of this. Is there anything else that we should know about? And in that context, it's more important to know about things like herpes or perhaps uh, uh, past syphilis, if there was any question of adequacy of treatment and certainly about HIV risks. So these are all other STDs that, in my book, are far more important than HPV in terms of things that people should discuss. HPV can be part of that discussion, but not as a sense of, oh, my God, I had a, you know, what, what people should not do is say, I had an abnormal pap smear five years ago, everything is fine, and now we need to worry about you getting my HPV. That is absolutely not the case, and uh, there's uh, and should not be a concern. HPV tests are currently only used with women as part of cervical cancer screening, and people will ask us frequently, "Well, why can't I get an HPV test the way, say, I might get an HIV test or I might test for chlamydia? Uh, why, why such a narrow focus on HPV testing?" Well, first, the market for these tests is heavily in women, and therefore the test manufacturers have put their resources into those tests, and they've sought approval from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and similar regulatory agencies in other countries uh, to use it in that fashion, and so it's not formally, the, the tests are available are not approved for use other than in that fashion, um, and even then, there some of them, I believe, are approved for use in conjunction with a pap smear and not independent of other of the other components of what we call uh, pap smears, that is cancer screening. So there's a regulatory reason why labs are hesitant to do it and where you can't really necessarily rely on the results because they haven't been studied to know exactly how well they work in that setting. But the other reason, and part of the very reason why the manufacturers and prevention agencies recommend using a test in that fashion is that there's not much to do with the, with the results. Given the fact that 20, 30, depending on age, 50, 60 percent even of some sexually active people are going to have genital HPV at any point in time, what good does it do to know it? You, if there's no disease, no warts, no lesions that could be cancer, no abnormal pap smear, then there's no treatment. There's nothing to do about it. You know it's going to go away, and in the vast majority of cases, it's never going to cause any harm, either for that person or his or her sex partners. So 
if you were to have widespread testing, what you would do is find an awful lot of infections, create a large amount of anxiety that otherwise is just unnecessary because those infections are there. They are, for the most part, going to be harmless. And, uh, and more harm than good could certainly be done. Now, for the individual who is especially concerned and wants to insist on testing, you know, you can find it online. Some doctors will order the tests, even though they're intended for use in women in association past year. Um, and if you then find a negative result, maybe you'll somehow feel good about yourself, but it won't mean that you're at any lower risk for getting penile cancer or anything like that in the future. So there's really just not much to be done about it. In fact, this goes so far that the CDC in its STD management guidelines says that even the, known, even the partners of people with known HPV infection should not even go to a doctor about it and should not be tested unless and until they notice problems that could be HPV. So the guy who is the partner of a woman with an abnormal pap should not go and worry about getting tested for HPV unless he gets something that looks like a genital wart, then that should be checked out. Uh, because if you test such people, you will often find HPV and you won't be able to do anything about it. Or you won't find HPV and it won't mean they're not infected because the tests are not designed for that purpose. You could be tested repeatedly have negative results and still be carrying one or more HPV viruses because we don't really know. We, we, we would assume the test met circumstances missing an awful lot of infections. So there's just really not a whole lot of benefit, uh, and there's a lot of potential downside in terms of anxiety production and uh, stuff that doesn't, uh, doesn't really matter. A, a related thing that comes up, a question I get, Fred, not infrequently, is someone who is exposed to HPV. So the, a guy, for example, who is the partner of a woman who has abnormal pap, that relationship is now over and he is now out dating other people and wants to know, do I need to tell my future partners that I was exposed to HPV? And the answer is absolutely and definitely not. The chance that guy has genital HPV is no higher than the chance that anybody else has genital HPV. And there's no higher risk to his partners than from any other randomly selected partner they may choose. So you don't do anything to protect your new partner. All you do is potentially create anxiety that doesn't benefit that individual in terms of her future health. Are HPV tests harder to do in men? Um, I understand just this, the nature of the male genital skin is such that it's hard to get a really good sample in the first place. Is that also another sort of confounding factor with say, like testing guys? Yes. The practical issues of collecting HPV specimens in men uh, has plagued researchers for a long time. So the earliest studies showing how extremely frequent HPV is uh, in various sexually active groups were based on the cervix because the cervix is a moist tissue, easy to sample. Uh, and uh, it was assumed that uh, rapid, that easy test that the test could be done there. In fact, even a cervical sample in women misses a lot of infections. If you really want to determine for sure whether a woman has HPV, you sample not only the cervix during a pap smear, but you would also scrape the vaginal opening, the vaginal walls, the labia minor, 
and maybe even the anal area. And if you do those things, you may double the number of apparent HPV infections compared to testing the cervix alone. In men, it's even more difficult, and it has taken researchers a number of years to understand how best to study men to determine what proportion are carrying HPV. So in a research setting, people will do things like both moist swabs under the foreskin, on top of the foreskin, penile shaft, penile opening, and then they also use sandpaper or similar uh, uh, abrasive devices to scrape the penile skin and then rub that to, and then swoosh that around in the saline solution to then test for HPV. Well, the practical issues are that if a guy shows up in a doctor's office and says, I'm going to get HPV testing, are you really going to do all those things? And which exact right. sites do you do? A single quick swab or urine specimen simply is never going to be adequate to detect most infections. So that's, that is one of the reasons why the commercial companies producing these tests, number one, say our test is valid only at the cervix because we haven't evaluated how well it works at other sites, and we have no clue how well it would work in men. Therefore, we are not promoting our test for use in men. Finally, I want to ask you about vaccines. We have three HPV vaccines on the market. All three of them are very effective at uh, blocking infections and diseases related to the high-risk types that are associated with the vast majority of cervical cancers. Uh, two of the vaccines are also very good at blocking infections with the low-risk types that you find with probably 90% of genital warts. So we have vaccines. Uh, we've had them going as far back as 2006. We know that they work really well. Um, but people still ask us about safety issues. And I want to ask you then, this is really a, a broader vaccine discussion where people worry about safety issues, but you hear it a lot with HPV. Is there any reason to worry about safety concerns with, with these vaccines? No, absolutely not. Uh, I would basically point out, though, that, that in fact, going forward, there will be two vaccines, not three. Uh, Merck, the producer of the current quadrivalent vaccine covering four HPV types, is going to cease production of that and rely entirely on their nine-valent vaccine, the one that covers those same four plus five others. So going forward, after the next year or two, the, the, uh, the uh, current version of Gardasil covering four types will probably be gone, at least in the U.S. and increasingly in other countries as well. In any case, uh, all three of the currently available vaccines are totally safe. You know, anything, anytime you stick a needle in an arm, you can get a little pain at the injection site. Uh, it's no, no worse with uh, HPV uh, vaccines than with influenza or childhood vaccines or anything else. And the occasional person under the stress of getting that little painful shot may get a little lightheaded, dizzy, or may faint, and that sort of thing. Again, simply the same kind of reactions people will also have having blood drawn. But in terms of important side effects that people care about, important health issues or disease of any kind whatsoever, it's really simply not an issue and should never, ever be a reason not to get the vaccine. The only rare exception is if someone has previously had an allergic reaction to the vaccine or to a related vaccine, then his or her doctor may recommend that they avoid that vaccine and certain other types of vaccine in the future just to avoid the exceedingly low risk of a severe 
and potentially dangerous allergic reaction. But that's a, another rare event. The average person out there simply need not worry about the health impacts of having this vaccine. All the health impacts of HPV immunization are positive in terms of HPV, HPV prevention. There essentially are no downsides to immunization. And I may have said part of this before. Uh, people should look at HPV as a natural and expected component of human sexuality. You really can't avoid it. Um, we're all going to get it. Um, even those who are consistent condom users are going to get it. And uh, it should be looked at in the same way that we carry billions of viruses and bacteria in or on our bodies all the time. We all have staph and strep on our skin. We all have E. coli in our intestines uh, and a number of others. Once in a while, those no, mostly benign bacteria that are normally part of our physiology do cause bad disease and pop up, and we need to be aware of and worry about the occasional severe staph infection. But it's part of being human to have various bacteria and viruses uh, uh, as part of us and who we are. HPV is simply one of them. It's one of billions. It happens to be one that has evolved to exploit human intimacy as the mechanism for its own genetic survival uh, going forward into the future. And that makes it an STD, and that raises eyebrows and concerns and anxieties in various folks. But it is a normal and expected part of uh, human sexuality. There are other genital bacteria that are passed sexually but also cause no harm. Urea plasma, various mycoplasmas, and others. Um, so this is just part and parcel of who we are as humans, and we need to be aware of and take protection against those rare outcomes that will harm our health. We do want to prevent cervical cancer. We do want to prevent genital warts, which although not usually dangerous, are an unpleasant inconvenience. And therefore, we should be immunized, and we should take common sense precautions in terms of how and where we select our sex partners. But we should not let HPV be a dominant factor in our decisions about health, love, romance, and uh, rewarding sex. Um, second, condoms. Condoms help prevent HPV. There's no doubt about it. But even with a condom, HPV transmission is pretty frequent uh, because there's a lot of skin contact above the range on the penis where the male condom covers. Um, for any single exposure, if someone's having an exposure with a commercial sex partner, he obviously and should unequivocally use a condom to help prevent STDs in general, and HPV is one of the things that that will help them. However, the fact that a condom works well for any single exposure doesn't help very much in an ongoing, uh, ongoing basis, because even consistent condom users with in a dating scene where they have a several partners over the course of a few years are almost certainly going to get HPV anyway. That's not to say that there aren't good reasons to use condoms, but consistent condom users are still going to get HPV. And in a monogamous relationship, over time, the condom isn't going to help all that much. Again, there are good reasons often to use condoms, but HPV prevention all by itself on an ongoing basis 
is uh, is a little bit iffy. You need to take other precautions and be aware that happily most infections are never diagnosed, never cause symptoms, and never cause harm. And um, as we said before, looks at as a normal aspect of human sexuality and not something that for the most part people should be losing a lot of sleep over as they contemplate their lives in dating, love, and romance. Dr. Hunter Hansfield, thank you so much. I appreciate that you took time today to talk with us about what I'm sure you'll agree we can refer to as the common cold of STIs, HPV. I think that's a great way to put it. I've enjoyed doing it, Fred. Uh, have a good day. Thank you so much. And just I want to mention just quickly that ASHA launched not long ago a new premium service called Ask the Experts where we have online forums in which people can actually pose questions and experts will answer them. And one of our experts is none other than Dr. Hunter Hensfield. So be sure to check that out. Um, thanks to everyone who downloads and listens to this podcast. We'll have more to come, so check back often. We are online at ashrasexualhealth.org, and that's where you can find uh, the Ask the Experts feature I just referenced. And, of course, follow us on Twitter at InfoAsha and be our friend on Facebook. You can also sign up on the website to receive Asha's update emails, and we'll let you know what's happening in the world of sexual health, including new resources as we roll them out. Until next time, this is Fred Wine for Asha. So long, everybody. <laughs>